Alrighty, we are ready to get started today. How is everyone doing today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in with us here today at the Focus Compounding Podcast. Mr. Jeffrey Gannon, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. <laughs> I'm always waiting for you to say, how are you doing? I am doing great. So today, we have a very special guest on. He's also a Dallas native, if you could believe it. Samir Patel from Ask Aladdin Capital. He is on the line. Samir, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me, Jeff and Andrew. Hey, man. Thanks for coming on. I think, um, you know, there's this, you don't have a Twitter, but I, I did see some people tweeting about, uh, I think, your pitch deck one time or something along those lines. So people definitely know that you're out there. And I think this will be a great sort of avenue for you to, to you know, sort of talk about you, your investing style. You know, you definitely have sort of a unique background. And um, I've talked about on the show before how I'm sort of fascinated with this idea of stories and how everyone has their own unique story. The narrative is always being written and there's no one perfect story to life and how, um, you know, certain things could change in our lives and we end up doing completely different things. And it's, it's all an interesting story, but today we're going to be talking about your story. I was doing some research on you and oh wow no no that's that's not good yeah I know right Google I know (laughs) and they called you the Dan Marino of spelling and you were that I always I always preferred the Tony Romo of spelling (laughs) yeah yeah being in Dallas yeah and you were that kid from the spelling bee and I don't want to talk about your past I think uh, that's a good avenue for you to talk about your past but you know just sort of give us a little background on you and you know your childhood and sort of how that came about so tell me about the spelling bee and you know kind of go from there <laughs> yeah so i mean i i competed in the national spelling bee um five times in a row from i guess it was 2003 to 2007 um and i i placed third the first time i went and placed second the third time i went and yeah it, it was kind of interesting it started off being something that was almost completely accidental in the sense that um you know it was maybe six or seven and one day a friend of ours just mentioned hey there's this uh, spelling bee for indian kids um, you know, and Samir, Samir kind of you know knows knows a lot of big words for being you know three feet tall or however I was. So they they recommended that I went and you know did this, and so my mom took me and um, I did okay. It was actually it's called the North South Foundation, and it's a it's I guess a nonprofit that is designed to kind of raise scholarship money for underprivileged students in India. Um, but anyway, they host spelling bees here in the U.S. and I actually came in fourth at the local level, and I think I was seven at the time, and, and only the top three got to go to the national. But because I was like I, I was like six or seven, and everyone else there was like twelve or thirteen, the conference organizers, I guess, made an exception, and so um, I, I went to that. And so, long story short, I ended up winning, you know, mostly by luck, kind of that one. And so, so then I decided to move on to kind of scripts, which is the, you know, actual kind of real spelling bee. Um, and, you know, a lot of Indian kids use the North South kind of as like a training ground for scripts. And so then I went and competed in scripts. And uh, yeah, so I did that a lot. And it's kind of it's kind of one of those things where it, it's been this part of my life that has been both frustrating and also amusing, in the sense that like for years and years and years, people would be like, "Oh, you're that kid from the spelling bee." And there was definitely a period, especially kind of in high high school where I was like, look, I feel like I'm doing a lot of other cool things in my life. Can I please get past this stupid thing I did when I was, you know, yeah. <laughs> 11, right? But um, yeah, so so it's it's still surprisingly something that people decide to bring up. So um, here we are talking about it. No, it's no, because yeah, it's, it's just so interesting. And, and you know, it's, it's quite fascinating. And so you did you started that when you're six or seven years old. And how old are you now? Uh, 24 turning 25 in January. 
Nice. So from there, you've talked about, and I read on your LinkedIn, how you were homeschooled and how you plan to homeschool your kids and how you thought that it was, uh, it was pretty impactful and, 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 and great for you growing up. What was it about homeschooling? Do you think that sort of gave you that advantage, I guess, to excel? I mean, maybe you could sort of talk about that. Yeah, sure. And and you know me, Andrew. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about mental models because that's what I that's what I always talk about. Um, but so I think I, I think what I really got out of homeschooling is you know you I guess you would talk about utility and opportunity costs, right? In terms of the mental models. So in school. Um, you get to, you know, the benefits are that you're kind of in a group with your peers and you're sort of advancing at the same pace as them. And so you have kind of a natural platform on which to form, you know, relationships that last at least for the duration of school and hopefully longer. When you're homeschooling, you don't necessarily have that. So that's kind of what you're giving up. Um, But what you're gaining, the trade-off is that you can advance at your own pace and you don't necessarily have to follow the same curriculum that everyone else does, right? Um, So kind of a net net of that is that by the time I was 13, I had finished, I mean, I skipped like a grade in elementary school. I mean, grades don't really mean much for homeschoolers. Um, But but I'd basically done like algebra and geometry by the time I was 13, because in addition to the spelling bee, I also did math counts in middle school. And, And so when I was 13, I basically started taking dual credit community college courses. And so in, in four years of, you know, quote unquote high school, um, I basically just did a lot of dual credit courses at a community college and graduated with an associate's degree when I was 17, which is how I was able to go to, you know, a real college and get my bachelor's by the time I was 19. Um, so so I, I think there were a couple things that came out of that, right? And one of them is just looking at the world kind of in a little bit of a different perspective where um, I don't always assume, you know, like when I was homeschooled, right, it wasn't a standard like nine to five, you know, okay, you, you know, you go to school at this time, you get out at this time, you go to school Monday through Friday, and then you have the weekends off. And then you have the summers off and you have two weeks for a Christmas break. Um, you know, we didn't really take summer breaks, right? But at the same time, on a Tuesday afternoon, if it was a nice day, we might just not do anything and go to the park. Um, you know, and clearly that didn't retard my development as far as, uh, you know, getting through all the schoolwork I needed to. And so I think that really carried forward in the sense of, you know, when I got into the workplace, I was just sort of astonished by, you know, first of all, A, this very kind of linear, like, okay, the work week has to be nine to five at an office. And, um, you know, you work weekdays and you don't work weekends and you get these holidays off. And, you know, so then then B, the other thing is that I've never really kind of taken seriously sort of the very standard, like, okay, you're going to spend two years doing this, and then you're going to spend two years doing this, and that's just, that's just how your career progresses, right? I kind of am focused on progressing at my own pace. So I think I think that's what I really took away from it is this focus on utility and this focus on, um, you know, maybe not necessarily doing things the way that they've always been done or the way that people tend to do them, but rather the way that makes the most sense and allows me to kind of derive the most value from what I'm doing. Wow, that's that's so, a, yeah, that's absolutely incredible. So, was it your mom that taught you? Yeah, no, it was it was definitely. I mean, my mom. So, you know, my parents made the decision to do this uh, pretty early. And again, that was you talk about stories. That was kind of one of those serendipity things where um, I have a late birthday. You know, being born in January, I'm kind of cut off from going to school. You know, that year in kindergarten. Um, but I was kind of ready for it. But my parents just had to keep me at home, and I was getting bored. And you know, my mom was taking me to some gymnastics class or something at a local rec center, and ran into some homeschoolers who were, you know, had their books open. These kids aren't in school. And it's the middle of the day, and she's like, "Huh, I wonder what they're doing." Um, and so that's kind of how they got into homeschooling. They're like, okay, we'll try it for a year. And then, you know, just kind of went from there. And I never ended up back in a public institution of school until, you know, community college when I was 13. So wow. what was that like being 13 years old and I guess being with people in, in class that are, you know, way older than you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I think, I think 
probably less weird than than it, than it seems in retrospect now. Yeah. Um, I guess at the time I you didn't were literally have probably that kid, to, right? So I mean, I'd never been in school with like people my own age, right? Like I'd taken a few classes and stuff, but I'd never like, you know, I'd never even been in a public school environment really. And so I, I don't think at the time, it, and of course, being thirteen, like you don't necessarily see things the same way you would as an adult. So you know, at the time, it was just sort of like, okay, this is what I'm doing, and you know, it may not be what everyone else is doing, but I've kind of never really done what everyone else is doing. So I don't think there was a lot of awareness until I kind of got older. It was probably more when I was like 15, 16 that I started to realize like it was kind of hard to make friends with some of these people because they could drive and I was still having to rely on my parents to drop me off places and, um, you know, things like that. Okay. So then, so you come out, you're 17 years old, you have your associate's degree and where do you go from there? Um, I went to UT, UT Dallas here in here in the DFW area. So uh, I was actually planning to go to A&M, um, but they cut their scholarships the year that I was planning to go. And I, I had two criteria for college. One was that I didn't want to pay for it. And the second was that I <laughs> wanted them to accept all of my credits because um, I didn't want to spend four years getting a bachelor's degree. And so that basically limited me to in-state colleges just because like, you know, any out-of-state colleges wouldn't have accepted all the all the credit. But the Texas Common Core basically forces all the colleges to accept all that credit. Um, and then the second thing was that UTD offers really good merit-based scholarships. And so I was able to basically get through school without paying for it. So um, that's what ended me up at UTD. And then you actually, you went on to complete your MBA from there as well, didn't you? Yeah, because I mean, they gave me a four-year scholarship and they were really good about saying, you know, okay, so you're only using two years for your bachelor's, so, you know, feel free to use the remaining two years for, you know, whatever you want to, you know, any graduate work or, you know, other classes or so on. So um, that's basically what I did. So then from there, so now you're probably like, what, 22 years old, have your MBA. Yeah, and I should I should actually interject that I got really bored with classes and I, I didn't see the point. You know, I think like, like a lot of value investors, you know, maybe like yourself, Andrew, I've, I've never found formal education to necessarily be the path to enlightenment as far as... Uh, uh, as far as things go. Yeah. Um, and so my second year of, of school, I was 18. I actually started working full time as an editor for Seeking Alpha and I was on their Seeking Alpha pro team. Um, and then from there, the next year when I finished my bachelor's degree, I got a job with a hedge fund. So basically for my second year of college, I was working full time. So yeah, I was, I was, you know, I graduated with my MBA at like 20 or whatever it was, but by that time I'd already had, um, two, two and a half years of professional work experience. Well, so how old were you when you actually started getting into investing and what was sort of your your first forte into value investing? Because, you know, it's, it's interesting <laughs> because I'm always, I'm always curious to hear about how the bug bit them. Like for Jeff, for example, his father told him about this book, right? Mm, it was yeah. Benjamin Graham and, and that's sort of how he sort of dove into that world. Um, for me, my father was in the business. So from, you know, I sort of ended up here as well and then the value investing bug bit me and then, you know, it sort of opened up this huge world, uh, I guess, of this path that I've been on ever since. So for you, how did because both your parents, I'm guessing um, your mom you know, taught you. Uh, yeah, so engineers. So there you go. So they weren't into investing. So how did you sort of start this path that you've been on? Yeah, so um, I, I would say that there's all these apocryphal stories, right, of these value investors who started reading 10Ks when they were, you know, 12 years old, and um, you know, their juice box would have a little little financial filing <laughs> on it. Now, but you know, so I'm 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 kind of the opposite of that. Where I mean, I, I think I was vaguely aware that stocks existed. I, I seem to recall one time telling my mom when I was like six or seven because I'd heard something about the stock market crashing. That yeah, when I when I grow up and I have lots of money, I'm not going to put any money in the stock market. I'm just going to keep it in the bank. Um, you know, look how that worked out. How ironic, you know, right? seven-year-old Sammy. <laughs> but um, yeah, so 
So essentially, um, I, I think I got to about, you know, 16 or 17 and I'd saved up, you know, a few thousand bucks just from kind of odd jobs in high school. And I was just complaining to a family friend who was actually like an 83 year old Jewish grandmother from Boca Raton, long story. But um, I was complaining to her that I was getting like, you know, a penny's worth of interest per year for keeping my money in the bank. And she's like, oh, you should try this high yield bond fund at Fidelity, um, you know, blah, 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 and get pays a 6% yield and blah, blah, blah. And I had no clue what a high yield bond was, um, but it, it was just sort of the first time my eyes opened to like, oh, hey, I have I have a little bit of money and I can actually do something with it other than put it in the bank. Um, so I started I started investing in random mutual funds based on, you know, absolutely no knowledge at all. It was totally like, oh, what's done well the past five years? That looks good. Let's click on that. Um, you know, I started I started day trading, which was a, you know, compl- actually it wasn't a complete disaster. I didn't lose all my money, but I certainly didn't make any either. Um, so let's just say that I had no clue what I was doing for, you know, quite a while. And then I think what happened is I started writing for Seeking Alpha, and actually probably more after I started working there as an editor, um, you know, through being able to, you know, my, my job as, as a Seeking Alpha pro editor was I'm basically spending the whole day reading write-ups by either hedge fund managers or people who are good enough to kind of, you know, write write-ups that are attractive to that audience because that was the focus of the platform. And so I just leveraged that, you know, in terms of like, okay, learning about how these people think and and then reaching out to them, forming relationships, you know, both for the purposes of Seeking Alpha's contributor relations, but then also for the purpose of like, hey, can you give me reading lists or, you know, can you look at this idea write up I did and tell me what you think or, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's kind of how I got into value investing and, you know, several, several people. So there's a local guy here in town named Tim Heitman who'd worked for, you know, Prudent Bear and a number of other funds. Um, there was a, there was a fund manager from the Northeast named Chris DeMuth, who I was really good friends with for quite a while. And he was kind of a special situations guy, um, event driven. And, and, and so I, I got a nice broad, you know, very broad sampling of different approaches to value investing, ranging from, you know, Chris DeMuth's event-driven approach to, you know, kind of the bargain basement, old style Ben Graham, you know, deep value type stuff to, you know, more of kind of the compounders that's really popular now. And um, so it was just, it was a good place to start and really just be exposed to all those sorts of ideas. And then kind of from there, start to figure out like, okay, what makes sense to me? What's a good match, you know, trade adaptivity, mental model, um, what, what's a good match to my own unique interests and skill sets. So... That's interesting. So then from there, so how did you get a job at a hedge fund? What was that experience like for you? And um, maybe you could sort of talk about that. Yeah. um, Let's see what I'd say about that. I I, I would say, you know, first of all, I'm obviously very grateful to the PM for taking, you know, for for giving me that opportunity, because I don't think there are a lot of people who would have hired a 19 year old without much previous experience. Right. Um, And so his, his mentality actually was that, um, you know, he didn't want to hire the kind of standard pedigreed, you know, Harvard MBA, two years at Goldman, blah, blah, blah type analyst, because he figured if he hired the same analysts as everyone else, he'd get the same ideas. Um, you know, and so and so I learned a lot there. He was a small micro cap investor. So certainly, you know, getting to go to Roth, getting to go to B. Riley and, you know, some of those sorts of events was um, interesting and kind of helped provide me with a lot of perspective. I would say at the same time that, you know, there were many reasons I decided to move on. Um, I think one of them was there was a little bit of a just mismatch in terms of, you know, he, he He'd, basically, he'd been a very successful manager, had a great track record, and then had ended up returning a lot of the outside capital and kind of was at a point in his life where, um, you know, I think investing in public stocks for various reasons wasn't necessarily his day-to-day priority. Um, you know, and obviously for me it was. So I think I think I needed to, you know, move somewhere else to um, continue my development, basically, among, among, among other things. I mean, that's sort of the abbreviated version. Yeah. So did from there, did you start escalating capital? 
Yeah, and, and there were a lot of there were a lot of things that went into that, and I know you and I have talked about a number of them. But um, you know, fr- from talking to mentors, and I think I think as you know, Andrew, right? My long term goal is not to maximize my total lifetime earnings; it's to you know live the live the life that I want to live. Just to be a good um, dad. And, and, I got that from your pitch book. Yeah, no, so that's I mean that's a big part of it, right? And there's also just sort of the lifestyle things around you know we you know about my chronotype and you know about you know sort of my aversion <laughs> to a lot of the typical nine to five type stuff and offices and dress shoes and um, so so I. I think, I think when I'm thinking about what I want to do in the long term, you know, it was always very clear to me from talking to mentors that the path I needed to take was, you know, be, being in charge of my own destiny. Um, and so what I came to understand from talking to a lot of people who'd been in the business for a while is kind of no matter how much background you have, you know, unless you like worked for David Einhorn or Julian Robertson or something, um, it's going to be very rare for you to kind of come out of being an analyst and then immediately kind of be funded and get a lot of capital. Like typically people want to see you establish your own track record and so on and so forth. Um, so from talking to them, it just didn't really seem like there was a lot of benefit at that point to continuing to work for other shops. And, and just, just just in terms of my what I wanted to accomplish personally, it seemed to make a lot more sense to just kind of go it go go at it on my own. And, you know, being being young really helped in the sense that, you know, look, I don't have a family, I don't have a mortgage. So it, it's not like I needed to make a lot of money for any specific reason in the next few years versus if you delay and then, you know, you get a you get a girlfriend that turns into a wife and that turns into three kids and a mortgage. And, you know, it's just harder at a certain point in your life to go do something something entrepreneurial because you have other people whose, um, you know, livelihood is depending on you, right? It's sure. Not just yourself. So, yeah. So that was kind of, that was part, that was, that was sort of what into, what, what, what went into, sorry, I'm tripping over my own tongue here, um, the decision to start my own firm. Gotcha. That's awesome. Your structure is as a hedge fund and also you do manage separate managed accounts as well, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Great. And what is your, you know, cause you, you sort of, you had a bunch of different mentors and you sort of got to view a bunch of different styles. What would you say is sort of your investment philosophy and investment style for your fund? Yeah, I mean, I think I think where I've kind of settled out is I'm somewhere between, um, you know, having probably more valuation sensibilities than a lot of people who focus on compounders. Um, but at the same time, not really being in that deep value arena because I kind of prize business quality. So, so what I like to say is shorthand, and this is obviously just shorthand, right? But I like to say that I'm equally happy paying 10 times free cash flow for a business that's worth 15 times, or I'm equally happy paying 15 times for a business that's worth 20, right? So I kind of find that the middle is my sweet spot, kind of like those solid high quality firms that grow, but they're not growthy enough to attract the really high valuations, right? Where it starts to, you know, you have to underwrite kind of a lot of growth going out a long time to justify you know the the, the multiple um, you know on, at the same time I've kind of found that I'm not really good at underwriting the cigar butt type situations um, and, and so I kind of tend to focus on that middle spot you know that's somewhere between deep value and between you know paying a really big multiple for compounders sure that's cool and then how many stocks do you typically have in your portfolio and is it like a long only portfolio could you sort of correct yeah no it's it's long only i don't short i don't use options i don't i don't it's really just plain vanilla you know kind of bottom up stock picking um concentration eight to 15 names is the target um you know i've been a little more concentrated since inception than i necessarily intend to be um you know for forever but it's just sort of like a you know the current market environment we're in it's just hard to find really good ideas so you either kind of have to be willing to buy a little more of the stuff that you really like, or you have to, um, you know, decide to 
hold just a lot of cash. And I already have, you know, 10, 11% cash in my portfolio. The target range right now is about 10 to 15. And I kind of view it as an opportunity cost thing, right? Where if I can underwrite something, um, you know, at, at a 15, 20% IRR over a three-year period, it's a little hard to justify holding just tons and tons and tons of cash unless you have some reason to believe there's going to be, you know, a big market correction overnight, which I don't feel like I have any particular insight into, right? So, um, that's kind of where I come out on, on that. And, you know, my large positions, I think it's fairly well known publicly, but I do tend to take, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to take, you know, well north of 20% positions and stuff if I think it's really, really compelling. Sure. And then do you, is your typical time frame probably more that I'm guessing more longer term then? like more than like two to three years or what, yeah, do, that's, what are your that's thoughts on that? Yeah, that's funny. So I would, I mean, the, the way that I always underwrite companies, you know, with, with very few exceptions is that I initiate a position when I think I can earn a 20% return over a three-year horizon, um, you know, and 20% annualized, obviously. So what I mean by that is that, you know, I think that the company's worth something today. And then obviously I think that's going to compound at 10% a year, you know, for three years. And so if you kind of add that discount to fair value and that compounding and look out three years, which is what I think it, you know, it should take at most for the market to kind of recognize what's going on or for me to be proven wrong. Um, you know, that's, that's how I underwrite things. And I think what's ended up happening is, you know, just due to the environment we're in, I think good news tends to get priced in very quickly. Um, so, so if you look at my, if you look at my returns, right, I, I don't think my, you know, I, I've had really good performance, and I think that's not so much because the companies I've invested in have just sort of blown past my expectations. I think it's just that the market has re-rated them much more quickly than I ever would have anticipated. Um, you know, so you can have something that that I buy and that goes up kind of 50%, and then you're sitting there six months later, and you're like, well, okay, you know, I don't necessarily want to be turning over the portfolio this quickly. But on the other hand, right, as a, as a valuation-sensitive investor, even once you kind of think about the tax consequences and whatever, it's a little hard to want to own something that's trading, you know, 30, 40, 50% higher than where you just bought it. Um, you know, when I don't feel like the fundamental situation has improved, you know, to that to that extent, right? So um, yeah, I would say that in theory, my target would be, you know, underwriting to a kind of two, three, four year horizon. Um, you know, in practice, just the market environment we've been in, I mean, it's stuff has been, you know, kind of re-rating for the most part, much, much more quickly than that. Um, but I obviously don't think that would con- continue forever. Sure. And then are you, do you, I mean, you said that you work for a, a guy that invests in micro caps. Is that, do you typically, are you agnostic to where you look to invest in like company size or where do you typically? Um, yeah. So that's, that's in? always a, that's always a fun discussion, right? I mean, on, on the one hand, you kind of have the, the purists who are like, you know, oh, I mean, like there used to be a guy I know who's like, you know, I'd look at large caps. He'd be like, why are you ever looking at large cap? Um, then on the other hand, you've kind of got the people who defend the all cap approach saying that, you know, look, the volatility in these big stocks, you know, look at, look at how much Google and Amazon move around in a year. And it's hard to say that there's not opportunities there as well. Right. Sure. Um, you know, I'd say a few things. I think one is that, you know, people are, you know, I, I forget, I forget exactly how the Buffett or Munger quote goes. Here we are first, first obligatory value investor reference to Buffett and Munger. Um, but, but, you know, you, you can't do all things at all times, right? And so I think you kind of have to have some amount of focus, even as a generalist. Otherwise, it's just difficult to decide, like, okay, what do I work on next? Um, so I think small and micro cap became my focus for a couple reasons. One is that, you know, I do think empirically there there do tend to be, you know, better opportunities in that space, just because obviously larger funds scale out of it. You know, even successful small cap managers tend to take on a lot more, uh, 
a lot more capital and you know especially the liquidity in some of these micro caps like i was just kind of running a little analysis of what's in my portfolio and what's on my watch list and you know it's not it's not like the only thing i invest in but in some of these sub you know 100 sub 200 million dollar companies even if you're running 50 or 100 million dollars you know it can start to be difficult to build you know reasonably sized positions in those companies so i, I do think there is a phenomenon of there being opportunities there for that reason um you know the, the other thing too and i i, I don't want to you know i don't want to pitch it i don't want to pitch it in terms of like i think that everyone who doesn't invest in small caps is stupid like i think there's plenty of reasons to invest in other things um i just think that this is something that i happen to have kind of developed a little bit of expertise in in terms of it's easier to analyze some of these single segment companies some of these market niches where it's a little harder to find information um but at the same time, I also think just kind of from a business perspective that I, I don't know what value I add to clients being the, you know, trillion and one guy to, to analyze Google or to analyze yeah. Facebook or to analyze Amazon, right? Sure. So it's not even so much that I have a view that those stocks are unattractive or attractive or, or whatever. It's just that I kind of, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to pay, you know, if you're going to pay for more than an index fees, right? I, I, I think that my value proposition is kind of unearthing opportunities that you wouldn't be able to find on your own or that, or that you know, other managers probably aren't going to be looking at for you. Um, you know, and certainly I, I just have a really hard time kind of looking at Amazon or Google and Facebook. And yes, even if it's cheap, I don't know. I don't know if that justifies me buying it and then putting my fee structure on top of it, if that makes sense. Right. Cause I think clients, you know, I, I think you'd have to live under a rock to not, to not know that Google and Amazon exist and there, there are much cheaper ways to get exposure to those sorts of names. Sure. No, I um, so, so certainly I think that there's a lot of impairment. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to downplay. I mean, I do think there's a lot of empirical um, reasons to focus on small and micro caps, and that's one of the reasons I'm closing my fund at 50 million in AUM is because I want to be able to continue to exploit that. You know, what I view as that opportunity set. Um, you know, but on the other hand, certainly there are plenty of very talented investors who look at other spaces, and I've just chosen not to for you know a variety of reasons. Sure. No, that's that's great. So then, what's your research process typically like? Which is always something that I'm always interested in. Um, like, for example, like when you first get interested in a stock. Um, like, this is the first thing you do is go read a 10K. Do you go to the SEC.gov website? Maybe take us through that process. Do you <laughs> let's, screen? Let's, let's drop some. Let's drop some heresy here. Um, yeah, yeah. So I hate 10Ks. Um, I'm gonna come out and say it, and you know, I'm immediately gonna get blackballed by like you know 70% of value investors out there. Um, I really, really, really hate reading 10Ks, and here's why. I feel like most 10Ks are written by lawyers for lawyers to satisfy kind of this checklist of disclosure requirements, right? Very rarely do I read a 10K and come away thinking, oh, wow, I now have a phenomenal understanding of what's important to this business. I come away feeling, yeah, there's a checkbox, and this guy now told me that global warming may wipe out the global population, and now there's going to be no customers for the company, so yeah. their stock price may decline. Sure. And it's like, okay, not not helpful, right? And obviously, obviously, there's sections of the 10K that are very important for due diligence and whatnot, but my process typically starts by, if I can find the company giving an investor day or a presentation at like a sell side or industry conference where they're just kind of explaining, you know, with more quality qualitative color what it is they do. Um, that helps me understand whether or not it's even the sort of company that, you know, is within my wheelhouse or circle of competence, right? And so th from then, I, from there, from that starting point, I would proceed then to use the filings for due diligence. But I find that the conference calls typically provide a lot more color in terms of just trying to learn about like, hey, what does this company do? What's their strategy? Um, you know, what is management view is important? What's been happening recently? Um, so that's, that's typically my starting point. 
No, I mean, I think I completely agree with that. Jeff and I, we recently did a podcast on like a checklist sort of um, to go over or things to think about that's outside of the 10K to learn more about like the business. And, and you know, because there's obviously a lot that, I mean, I kind of agree a lot of what a 10K is, I feel like sometimes is um, copy and paste, quite honestly. And so sometimes, um, you know, I think you could learn a lot about a business from, you know, sort of we talk about thinking like a journalist and, and kind of going outside of like the filing to learn about the company itself right and you know what's and i don't want it to sound like i don't read the 10ks right i mean i read all the footnotes and all that i do all the i do all the necessary stuff but at the same time it's like if you look at mdna that's provided you know on the financials it typically contains a lot less explanation than the conference calls right because the conference calls a i guess just because it's less regulated or whatever you know and it's they, they cover their butts with a safe harbor um you know they just give you more color and then analysts of course ask things so a lot of times you'll get you know things that the company doesn't necessarily want to like disclose with rigor on a regular basis but just sort of directionally like okay how much of your contracts are related to like this sort of customer or this sort of industry or whatever right and, and you can't find that in the 10k but you can find that in the investor deck or in the you know conference calls or places like that um you know so i just i typically find those to kind of be a lot more helpful for starting which you know again i know is non-traditional but no i, I yeah. no i think that's great so do you use screens typically or how do you come across ideas that you're interested in and you know sort of decide to, uh, yeah, I, do more I, don't, due I don't know that I've ever really used formal screens. I mean, I'm sure it's something I could use. I just typically have had enough kind of lead flow um, without them. So, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, like everyone else I read, you know, I, I do spend some time reading kind of uh, investment write-up sites like Valley Investors Club or Seeking Alpha or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And and I'm not necessarily looking for pitches, right? And we'll get into my process in a little bit in terms of the watch list, but I very rarely care about like, oh, is this a cheap stock or is this actionable today? Um, I'm just more looking for, hey, is this an interesting business where like, you know, if you're bullish on the stock and, and, and you're reasonably competent at what you do and you write it up and you can't give me a few reasons to actually be interested in the business model, then it's probably not a good use of my time to work on, right? Um, so I do find that kind of a helpful filter in terms of like, okay, if someone really likes a company, um, you know, if, if I don't even get interested in, in just the fundamental business, then it's probably not worth my time to actually do any primary work. Um, you know, of course, then there's also what I call N plus one opportunities, which are like, I already know a sector, for example. Um, you know, so for example, I, I really love these, uh, small cap kind of technical products industrials that just sell these really niche products that are low dollar in context of customer budgets but they're really high value or really big importance i'll give you an example so a stock that i've never owned but I followed for a long time is Cadent, uh, tickers K-A-I. And, you know, one of the things they sell or one of their big product lines that they've historically sold is these little blades that go into these big paper manufacturing plants. And these blades get replaced, like, I think, multiple times a day or, you know, every few days or something like that. Um and, and, and they're a big market share leader there. And obviously, you know, these blades are not cheap. They're, they're priced at a premium to competitors, but they're also high performing. And, and very few people are going to take the risk of, okay, let's save, you know, relative pennies on this blade. Um, and then our giant factory shuts down for four days because, it, you know, the new one screwed up. And, and now we're losing, you know, thousands or millions of dollars a day in, in downtime, right? Um, so, so I like finding little companies like that that just make these niche products that have kind of, you know, very strong margins and, you know, aren't super capital intensive and they have a good good reputation in their industry um you know and so you kind of tend to encounter other companies um just by kind of looking at those kind of companies right it's like okay well you know who's upstream of them who's downstream of them who are their competitors and things like that um and then, of course, there's also, you know, I have friends who kind of know what kind of stuff I like and will say, hey, you know, I've been looking at this recently. This seems like it might be up your alley. So, you know, 
variety of sources, but there's never, let me put it this way. My, my, my problem is usually too little time to work on interesting ideas rather than uh, too few ideas to work on that are interesting. Sure. No. And that's sort of how, I mean, Jeff, a lot of people bring ideas to you as well, right? They, I mean, just people you've spoken with over the years and they'll say, this may be a business that you're interested in. Sure. And they Phil kind of Fisher bring it said to that's how he got his most interesting ideas. Was people just bringing ideas to yeah, him? Yeah. Cause I think it's the people know you. And so they bring you the kind yeah. of ideas that you like. They don't bring you ideas that aren't going to appeal to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. No one's going to be like, Hey, Samir, Apple's trading at a great valuation. <laughs> right. You're like, exactly. okay, yeah. great. Go check out <laughs> Google. I don't know what to do with that. But yeah. Sure. No, that's interesting. So you said, so you, you like to follow the business and I think we're sort of under that same mindset, how it's better to like the business first instead of go into it maybe because you think it's cheap, because sometimes you can confuse a statistically cheap stock with a margin of safety. So like for that situation, why have you never owned it? Is it because you just never, it never got to the point of being cheap or oh, you mean cadent? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, you can just look at the stock price, and you can just look at the EBD EBITDA multiple, or you know, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to price it on, and then the thing just took off. Like, I mean, it was kind of, you know, when I started working on it, it was, you know, maybe close to a reasonable valuation, not quite what I wanted to pay. And then instead of instead of getting more reasonable, it got less reasonable and less and less reasonable. And you know, now now it's so unreasonable. Or I, I haven't looked at it in a while, actually. I can't I can't really speak to it. But certainly at one point, it had gotten to just like a very very expensive valuation. So I kind of stopped working on it for a while, and you know, figure I'll come back to it at some future point. When it's sure. you know not so expensive no but i think that's great i mean for investors to do and for everyone to listen i think that's always my sort of advice is to build up a watch list of businesses that you would love to own if the market gave you a chance and then that's how you're able to actually like be patient and um you know not give into the irrational swings of mr market you can almost use them to your advantage yeah, and I was I was just I mean, I think you put it well when you talked about confusing a statistically cheap stock with a margin of safety. I think the only modest thing I would add to that, you phrase it really well, is that you have to consider the behavioral angle, right? And you know that I'm big on the um, you know, cognitive biases and stuff. And so I think that when you psychologically define success as, you know, finding a cheap stock to put in the portfolio, it's easy to get frustrated if you aren't doing that, right? So, you know, after after working on a you know a dozen stocks and none of them make it into the portfolio, there's a very strong temptation on that 13th to, you know, find a way to make it cheap. And, you know, when you want something, it's called desire bias, right? It really shapes, uh, you know, shapes your objectivity and, and kind of prevents you from seeing things clearly, um, you know, versus when I view it as my job, like, hey, today I want to, you know, find a new company and put it on my watch list. Or, you know, hey, this week, I want to go back and review these three companies that have been on my watch list and see what's going on with them. Um, you know, that kind of makes it easier to be objective and to really kind of wait for the market to give me a fat pitch or, you know, whatever, whatever term you want to use. Um, you know, and of course, as long as you put some structure around that to make sure that you're not wasting your time working on stocks, you're never going to own, you know, I think that's a more, at least for me, it's a more effective approach um to to making sure that only the the best situations end up in my portfolio as opposed to kind of the you know 52 week low list Sure. No, I think that I think that's fantastic. So you sort of alluded to it um a little bit earlier about your watch list process. What's that about? Yeah, so so basically I find, you know, a couple things. One is that I just think that you you learn a lot more about a business when you follow it longitudinally than when you try to do all the work at once. So, you know, no matter how much time I spend on it, right? Like sometimes I'll spend two weeks working on one stock. Um, almost inevitably in six to twelve months, there are kind of initial things that I just either completely missed or that I misinterpreted or that I couldn't have known with the information that was available at the time, but kind of with things that came out after that, you know, kind of became clear, right? Um, you know, and this isn't just me, of course. 
businesses from talking to people who've been in the business for a very long time. Um, so, so I just tend to find generally that I do better when I have followed a company or, you know, even better, like a, a sector kind of or an industry for kind of an extended period of time. Um, and so the watch list is really designed to allow me to do that, right? So when I'm looking for a new stock to work on, I'm not necessarily super sensitive to valuation because the goal isn't to get it in the portfolio today, right? And obviously, like if something's trading at 20 times EBITDA, it, it's unlikely that I'm going to waste any time working on it just because it's like, okay, well, you know, th- there's no way I'm going to buy it at even 15 times EBITDA, right? So, so even if the stock were to decline materially, kind of you know over the next few quarters, the next year, whatever, it's still unlikely that I'd that I'd have a chance to work on it. But if you have something that's kind of trading within a reasonable range. So like, let's say, you know, just ballpark for whatever reason, I think it's worth, uh, and I'm just using EBITDA because it's easy. That's not necessarily what I use for valuation. But um, let's just say that there's a stock that I think is worth, you know, 11 times EBITDA and I'd want to buy it at eight or nine times and it's trading at 12 times, right? It's like, okay, well, if they have a few bad quarters and or if that sector just falls out of favor and or, you know, any number of other things, right? You and I have both seen stocks kind of go down 20, 30% on, you know, a bad quarter or maybe two bad quarters. Um, you know, so with that sort of thing, it's like, okay, well, if I work on this, it's not a complete waste of my time because statistically, if I work on enough of these situations, again, back to mental models, the base rate is that I'm eventually going to get one that's cheap, right? And I don't necessarily know ex ante, um, you know, if I work on 10 stocks, which of them I'm going to be able to buy in the next three years. But usually, you know, if you work on enough stocks like that, one or two of them are going to get to a point that's really interesting for whatever reason. Um, So that's kind of my approach is just simply to say, okay, what are really interesting businesses that are worth following for the long term that I would like to own, you know, but the price just isn't currently there, or maybe the price is there, right? I mean, of course, I do sometimes find stuff that's trading for cheap valuations, and it would be stupid to just say, oh, I'm not going to work on this because I don't ever, you know, buy stuff the day I find it, right? I mean, there, there are certainly plenty of occasions when I've found stuff and very quickly put it in the portfolio. Um, but typically, I've started using kind of a what I call a scale-in process where and it's not super formal. It's not like there's really a big hard rule. But like typically, if I've just looked at something, I don't want to make it more than a 2 or 3% position, right? And that kind of goes up by 2 or 3% per quarter that I followed it. So there are a number of cases where I found something for the first time, made it maybe a 2 or 3% position, then, you know, kind of after one quarter has gone by, I add a little bit. After another quarter has gone by, I add a little bit. Um, you know, versus if I follow something for a long enough period of time, that kind of enables me to really go in, you know, if I think I see the opportunity that I want, that I can go in and, in a bigger size and kind of establish more of a fuller position versus scaling in over time. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the that's kind of the watch list generally. And of course, I've got I, I guess the other portion is that I put in a fair value estimate that's not like, you know, it's not set in stone, but it's just sort of like, okay, you know, today I think the stock's worth uh, 10 bucks, right? And so I'd like to buy it at a 20% discount. So rough numbers we'll call it 8, right? So um, I put I put the stock in at 10 and then the, let's say the current price is 11, so my spreadsheet will tell me, okay, well today, you know, this is 10% over your fair value estimate, but it does two things. One is it fetches the updated data, right? So it automatically fetches as the stock price changes, you know, where the stock is. But second is it takes my fair value number and it compounds it by 10% a year, right? Because conceivably, if I'm underwriting things correctly at a 10% equity cost of capital, then if I buy a stock, if I think a stock's worth 10 today, it should be worth, again, rounding, it should be worth 13 in three years, right? Because it should generate a dollar value kind of every, you know, from a of cash flow and growth um, every year. And so obviously, if the stock is at 10 today, well, maybe the stock doesn't move at all. But in two years, the fair value has moved up to 12, right? And so if you can buy a $12, you know, intrinsic value for $10, that's actually something that I'd be interested in. Um, so the spreadsheet kind of adjusts for that, too. So it kind of gives me at any time, you know, a good good way of looking at, hey, here's where things are trading relative to 
um, you know, what you thought they were worth. And so it's it just helpful because anything that's kind of either, you know, obviously below, but then even near reasonably near fair value is kind of worth looking at too, right? Because sometimes things can go better than you think, or there could be a big acquisition um, that's transformative, but the market just kind of hasn't picked up on like, you know, the value creation yet. And so the stock price may be higher, but the business value may have even increased faster than the stock price. So um, it, it's just very helpful in terms of prioritizing and allowing me to see like, okay, what is there out there in the world that I already know about that I should be working on, you know, and then kind of if there's nothing there, that's when I move to like, okay, well, let's go find something new to put on the watch list um, since there's nothing kind of that I already know about that's worth working on. Yeah, especially like keeping track of everything and all these businesses you've done work on. That sounds like uh, that's pretty efficient. And, and it also really helps with the opportunity cost of capital thing, right? I mean, Munger talks about how everything is opportunity cost and you really just have to measure everything against your next best idea. And so I think just having that all in one place makes it very easy, you know, for me to look and say like, okay, so this is kind of cheap, right? So like right now I'm looking at a company that I really like the business model, but it has, th- there are some questions around it. Um, and it has a little over three times debt to EBITDA, which is, you know, more than more than I like to see, right? I'm, I'm very focused on conservative balance sheets. And so, you know, in this case, it's not like the leverage is so high that I think the company's at risk. It's not like I wouldn't take a position, but it'd have to be a smaller position and I'd kind of want to be more judicious about the price I paid for it. Um, and so it's like, okay, well, if this is trading at like, you know, a 16, 17% discount for fair value, it's like, okay, well, that's not something I'm going to stretch for when I have kind of all these other things that are above it on the watch list, right? That are cheaper with, you know, either better characteristics or lower risk or, you know, what have you. So it just makes it very, very easy to, you know, not, not it's not a conceptual exercise anymore of like, okay, well, I could invest in this, but what else could I use that capital for? I mean, it's very clear. Like, okay, well, here are literally the 17 other things that, you know, my spreadsheet says I could use the capital for better. And of course, that doesn't, the spreadsheet isn't, you know, set in stone, but it at least gives me an idea of like, okay, well, these are the other things that would be considered kind of in competition with that. Sure. No, that's great. So I sort of want to shift gears here and talk about your website, which did you recently launch your mental model website? Yeah, so it was it was July, like it was around July fourth. Yeah, and that's actually how I, I I came across you was somebody told me about you because he knew that you were in the Dallas area and that obviously Jeff and I were in the Dallas area and I went to your website and I probably spent a good couple hours and that's how I actually read the book um, Why We Sleep was from Yay! your website. I'm evangelizing. That's right, and Never um, read the book. You, you changed my life. You changed my life, and I get better quality <laughs> sleep. So you know, maybe have talk you, have about. You been getting, have you been getting more and better quality sleep since oh, you read it? I, I have been because I've been making it a priority yeah and what are what are the what are, what are the changes you've seen in your life i mean well i mean definitely i just feel more productive and i could just i could feel a huge difference between getting eight to nine hours of sleep instead of getting you know five to six hours like i was getting before and i know, I know you're big on workouts does it improve your you know athletic performance too? oh certainly yeah no definitely yeah I mean, I don't understand how certain people, like, say, our president, for example, that says he only gets four <laughs> hours. Of, he gets four hours of sleep a night, or whatever. I don't. I. I can't do that. I wish I could and felt fine, but I just can't. Yeah, I mean, so you know, Walker talks about that, and so. Um you know, you can bring people into a sleep lab. And so there are actually a couple interesting things here, right? One of which is that people who are sleep deprived are like people who are drunk and tipsy at the bar and want their keys back in that they're impaired and everyone else can see that they're impaired, but they don't know how impaired they are. Like, it's just very hard when you're sleep deprived to know how much that's affecting your decisions. Um, and so again, sleep researchers, you know, if you've had less than seven hours of sleep, typically sleep researchers can bring you into a sleep lab and measure the impairment versus if they get it, you know, you get a baseline eight, nine hours of sleep 
sleep, and then they measure your performance on you know various kinds of tasks, both mental and physical. Um, but what's also interesting is you know everyone knows that guy who's like, oh yeah, I get by on six seven hours of sleep and I'm fine. Um, well, what actually what's interesting is there's two things. One is your baseline just resets, right? So you're just so used to feeling tired and crappy and whatever that you just kind of you know you don't realize how much better you'd feel if you did have sleep. Um, but the second thing is there actually genetically there is a very small percentage of the population that for whatever reason has has a gene that allows them to function properly with much less sleep than normal people. It's, you know, say five, six hours or something like that. Um, but, you know, the scientists estimate that the likelihood of you having that gene is roughly equivalent to the likelihood of you being struck by lightning, right? So it's, it's kind of like a, it's, it's a rounding, I mean, I may, I may be getting that wrong, but it's sort of a rounding error where it's like, yeah, we all know tons of people who say they're fine on six to seven hours of yeah. sleep. But again, statistically, the base rate is that that can happen, but it's just exceedingly, exceedingly, exceedingly rare. Yeah, what do they call it? The I know a guy syndrome or something like that? <laughs> something yeah. like that. Yeah. How many hours a night do you get? Um, you know, it, it depends. I mean, I would say, um, on average, probably about nine. I don't know. It really, it really depends. I tend to sleep more the nights I, you know, after I've worked out. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes, I mean, 10 is not unusual. Um, you know, it, it depends on a lot of factors. It seems to vary, but certainly I think, uh, you know, if it's less than eight and a half, I, I am not super happy in the sense of like, I know, you know, and certainly south of eight, I start like actually feeling it. So, yeah. um, it's a priority for sure. That's hilarious. What about you, Jeff? Same. Same, yeah. So that's good. All of us are not sleep deprived <laughs> and we all feel great. <laughs> that's interesting. So from your on your website then, which obviously you, you use as a, as a model, which everybody could check out as well, um, but your website is just an incredible treasure chest for people who are interested in mental models. And there's just such a such a plethora of information for people to learn from. Uh, so for anyone that's definitely interested, definitely check out your website. But what made you, I guess... Um, you know, sort of create the website and go through. I mean, were you doing it really for yourself to learn more or, you know, sort of talk about that process? Yeah, no, ab absolutely. Um, so I would say that, again, it's a mental model that sort of started this, right? And the mental model would be memory. Um, and, and, and the joke that I like to tell people, and it's actually true, what started this website is that I was reading a book called The Seven Sins of Memory. And I was reading it for the third time. And, and Andrew, do you want to tell me why I was reading it for the third time? Um, I'm guessing because you didn't remember it anymore? Yes, congratulations. Yeah. You, you had to put it in your long-term memory, right? Isn't that what they say? <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, it's funny because I'm reading a book about, you know, why, why our memories work and don't work in certain ways and I'm reading it for the third time because I've forgotten everything it said right um, and so I kind of realized like okay I spend you know half my life reading it feels like but I, I'm, I'm certainly like I hated the fact that I would read a book and I'd spend a lot of time reading it and thinking about it and then you know I'd read another dozen books and I'd read you know another dozen 10ks and then by the time I was done with that I'd be like well wait I, I can remember basically the back cover copy right the summary of this book but I can't remember any of the specifics and so I figured out kind of maybe three four years ago that I really needed to start taking notes on what I was reading because otherwise I just was going to forget, right? And so, so I started doing that. Um, and then along the way, I realized that if you, you know, a lot of the value is not necessarily in a concept as a standalone, but when you start, you know, um, Munger talks about kind of the Lollapalooza effects that happen when you start to get these mental models interacting. And so really it's interesting when you start thinking about how the models interact, right? Like, okay, memory and sleep, there's an interaction there in terms of like, you know, our memory works in a certain way, but if you're sleep deprived, it works, you know, worse, right? Um, you know, and it's not, it's not 
for the better. And and then how memory interacts with like, you know, corporate decision making in terms of like, okay, memory combines with cognitive biases, you get like hindsight bias, where because our memories don't work, right, it's very easy to focus on an outcome and kind of have that aha, you know, told you so syndrome, where something goes wrong. And we're like, Oh, man, that was a bad decision. I never should have done that. Because you don't remember at the time that it actually was a really good decision. And the circumstances were completely different, right. Um, and so that's just one example. And so you start getting kind of all these interactions. And so, you know, unfortunately, as much as people talk about mental models and, you know, building a latticework of mental models and whatever, there's just not really anything out there that I think people can go to if they really want to learn and they want to understand how these concepts interact and they want to do that in a structured way. Um, and so I started building it completely for my own purposes, just because I've always been a writer. And, you know, I, I find that when I write things down, um, I am better able to remember them. I then obviously can go back and refer to them. Um, and then it was a pretty natural jump from there to like, well, if I put in just a little incremental effort to sort of format this and write it in a reader-friendly manner, um, you know, it provides a lot of value to a lot of people. And of course, for, for me, right, it provides a platform to meet and interact with interesting people. So like, you know, I wouldn't have met you, right, if it hadn't been for the website because, you know, Joe Joe read the website and then Joe was like, oh, Andrew would love this and he's in Dallas and I'll send it to Andrew. And so, yeah, you know, exactly Joe reads it and then he sends it to you and you read it and then we meet up and now we're friends right so um you know it's it's a really useful networking tool i think in the sense of introducing me to people who are thinking about the world the same way i am which is something i think we all you know really want and derive value from no i think that's i think that's absolutely incredible and everyone definitely needs to check that out and we will put that link um obviously in the show notes so what do you and you also do book reviews on there as well correct yeah, and so that's the, the idea is to be vertically integrated, right? Because because when I think about how I learn, it's primarily through reading reading books, and, and of course I read some long form articles too, right? So like New Yorker type stuff, um, you know. But but mostly it's books, and one of the things I find is that you know again just like with companies, right? There are so many books out there. I mean, you can go on Amazon, and and you could you could I could fill up my entire house with books. I was like, gonna say, you do know, you read hard copies or do you have a Kindle? No, yeah. So I read I read hard copies, and um, I know a Kindle would totally be. I mean, you're gonna laugh. I went on a backpacking trip, and despite the weight, like I was carrying like three books, um, <laughs> you know, which which like the ultralight people would just like they they'd roll their eyes. But um, yeah, I mean, I for. For me, part of it is that I just spend like my entire life staring at a screen anyway. So I just kind of like literally the you know physical kind of break of like not looking at a screen and sure. looking at a looking at a book. Um, and then there's also the fact that I'm a value investor and you can get used books on Amazon for usually like you know a couple bucks plus you know another few bucks in shipping versus like Kindle books are usually like ten, twelve, fifteen bucks. Um, you know, and, and and saving five dollars a book doesn't sound like much, but when you, I mean, I my my Amazon bill is embarrassing. Like I don't spend money on pretty much anything else besides food and coffee but um the amount of money i spend on books is, is really truly staggering so it does yeah, it does add up yeah jeff has said that you you've said that before right that every year you look at to see what yeah. your uh, most small expenditures were on amazon and it's always books yeah i, I don't even look i just don't it's i mean yeah. my, friend, like, my friend clayton who jeff i know you, i know you know clayton yeah. but um you know clayton used to talk about like i think when he was a kid he had an allowance but something like his mom like would basically give him as much money as he wanted for books and i kind of i kind of view it the same way like i don't i'm frugal and i don't spend much money but like when it comes to a book you know it's unless totally it's like a really it. really expensive book like you know i'm not going to buy clarman's margin of safety but mm. but you know pretty much anything south of that like yeah if it's a book and it's you know not not five hundred dollars I'll, I'll buy it and it's almost like i mean obviously i've been reading on a kindle too uh, more recently but i do like hard copies because it's almost like it's a trophy in a way i feel like like there's just some <laughs> sort of satisfaction that comes from once you read it and you know you put it on the bookshelf or whatever just seeing that you read it and being able to reference it in the future and stuff like that 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not dogmatic. Like I do buy Kindle books sometimes, and you know, I know plenty of people who get value from it. And I certainly would not argue with the efficiency, right? Like being able to control F is huge. Like one of the biggest annoyances with the physical books, really any physical printed material, is not having control F because like it's so annoying when I like, especially when I was building the site, and like I would know that there was some reference somewhere that I wanted, but like I couldn't find it in my notes, and I couldn't just go search for it in the book. Um, yeah, but so I mean, the book reviews on the site are really for the purpose of helping people understand, like, okay, if there's a specific model. Or a specific topic or a specific category you're interested in, right? Like, you know, um, investing books aren't really covered on the site, but it's like, okay, there's a, there's a million books in any category. Um, which are the ones that kind of derive the most value per page for the user? Because unfortunately, right, there are a lot of books that have a lot of useful information, but it's buried in so much, you know, irrelevant detail that you kind of never get to it or you can't find it and or there's books that are just really poorly written um so for example like it, it always astonishes me that kahneman's thinking fast and slow is ever recommended by anyone right because obviously you know kahneman's research is top notch and he deserves you know all the praise he gets as a researcher but but his book is just like incredibly dry and dull and repetitive and it's not practical or applied at all right versus thaler's misbehaving which covers you know pretty much the same ground but it's hilarious it's witty it's really practical it, you know talks about how you can use it in your everyday life um you know so it's like okay if you're going to spend a certain amount of time learning about behavioral economics like why not do that in a fun way that you're actually going to remember because again memory mental model things that you enjoy you tend to remember a little bit better than things that are really dull and boring which is why i've forgotten you know everything i ever learned in college <laughs> yeah sure that's great um i guess uh what what is your favorite book by the way um, you know, I mean, it depends. I think I think the three that I name on the site, Why We Sleep is obviously one. I call it the most important book of the century, which I really don't think is hyperbole. Um, Misbehaving is probably my favorite book just in terms of like, it's really funny. Like, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, he could be, a, Thaler could be a stand-up comedian, you know, and it's super educational. Um, the Design of Everyday Things is also, I think, a really important one. And I don't know if we're going to get into it here, but I did a podcast with, uh, you know, John, John Mihalovich of the Manual of Ideas a while back where we talked about it a little bit. But just this idea of structural problem solving where like, you know, Norman kind of talks about, you know, a lot of people, when they are faced with a problem, they assume it's the user's fault, right? It's like these engineers designed this washing machine that has seven trillion buttons, you know, and then they're frustrated that the users can't figure out, you know, which of the buttons to press and which order and which combination, right? It's like one of those video games from childhood where it's like, oh, if you want to do this sword combo, it's like A and then Y and then X and then, you know, the right bumper or something. Um, and you have to hold the stick in a certain direction, um, you know, and obviously, obviously, right, like you can, you can try and force people to learn all this all this stuff if you're designing a product. Um, but you can also just sort of accept that people are the way they are and design a product for real people instead of these fictitious, you know, what Thaler calls econs, right? Which are, you know, people with unlimited willpower and unlimited memory and unlimited, uh, you know, knowledge. And none of, none of us know these people. Um, and so the design of everyday things is really about consumer products in terms of like, how do you design a good door? Or how do you design a, you know, stop sign that works well or whatever? Um, but but the, the idea behind it, right? Again, going back to mental models, this idea is totally applicable in other fields and so Thaler you know if you if you read his books and you look at his Nobel Prize you know, he mentions this several times that he actually you know Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things was a guiding principle for him and so Thaler you know along with some colleagues designed this program called Save More Tomorrow which long story short helped people save like six times the amount for retirement or just something it's incredible I mean you know, then you add compounding in right um, and they did that by basically understanding the mental models and kind of using structural problem solving to say like okay well how do we take these and turn these into pluses instead of just banging on people's doors and sa saying hey save more save more save more how do we create a system that encourages them to save more right without them you know having to exert any willpower and so you know I think I think those are probably my three favorite books that's you know it's hard to choose there's so many um, honorable mentions I love Lawrence Gonzalez 
Gonzalez's books about cognition and intuition. So he has two, one's surviving survival, the other's deep survival. Um, he's a great writer, you know, super informative too. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's so many good books out there. I just, I, I, I haven't even scratched the surface. Sure. And how did you get into like mental models and everything? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming a majority or of the interest came from like Charlie Munger and obviously Warren Buffett and being a value investor and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I think it sort of predates that in the sense that I probably was already thinking along those lines, and then you know I, I encountered the Munger and Buffett terminology, and it just gave me a way to organize what I'd already been thinking about. But certainly, it was just sort of you know I'd had this idea for a long time of like, okay, well, if you can just sort of figure out how the world works, right, and figure out these organizing principles, then you can apply them repeatedly. And so, like one of the interesting things that had always bothered me as kind of a you know teenager and a young adult was like why people seem to not apply the same lessons from business to life right and i think i think that's something that munger talks about really well is that like well the principles apply everywhere right and if there's a difference between principles and practices like obviously you don't necessarily talk to your eight-year-old kid the same way you talk to your employees or the same way you talk to your boss or your clients um but the idea of empathic listening right that's a, that's a principle that sort of transcends all those individual situations and you apply it differently but you know the whole dale carnegie stuff that works no matter whether you're talking about like you know trying to make a new friend or you know trying to get your family to do something or you know, trying to advance yourself in the workplace, right? So, um, yeah, but that's that's definitely where it came from. Sure. No, that's interesting. So I think we're going to kind of bring this to an end here. And I was, you know, obviously when I was doing some due diligence um, for this podcast, I was going over your pitch book and just a few different things. And in your pitch book, you said, please ask me about my mistakes and what I've learned from them. So I'm kind of curious to hear about, um, you know, some of your mistakes and what you've learned from them and, you know, sort of what your takeaways were from them. Yeah, sure. I guess I'd, I'll categorize this in two ways. And I guess the first is investment mistakes, which are probably less interesting. But, um, you know, so prior to launching, you know, since launching Ask a Lot, and I've been very fortunate in that obviously the market's been very conducive. And also I've just, you know, the investments I've made have worked out, um, you know, whether that's skill or luck is, is an open question. But, um, you know, before launching, I certainly had a lot of failures in my personal portfolio that were very obviously me making mistakes, like investing in companies that were, um, you know, heavily leveraged or had bad management or had, um, you know, cyclical you know very cyclical end markets and i kind of didn't size the position you know it's not it's not necessarily bad to invest in companies with some cyclicality but it is bad to sort of you know assume that the cyclicality is going to go your way right um so i think those are all you know fairly obvious lessons and and, and you know in a different context i'd be happy to chat more about that in terms of the investment side of it um you know i think personally the biggest mistake i've made and, and the one that continues to be a challenge i think not just for me but for a lot of people is separating the world that you want to exist from the world that actually exists. And so it's that desire bias thing that I was talking about, which is, you know, one of the models. But so, for example, I kind of want, you know, I, I really, I really prize, um, you know, kind of strong relationships and civility and kind of kindness and things like that. And I want the world to be a place where, you know, you get ahead by sort of being nice and doing the right thing. And if you do that, then everything will work out, right? Um, you know, and I think what I've come to find is that th that is true much of the time. And certainly, I think it's adaptive to behave in that manner. But just because you do all the right things doesn't guarantee that you're going to get a right outcome, right? And there are bad actors out there who will take advantage of you and who, you know, no matter how much you try to kind of help them and do the whole Dale Carnegie thing, um, you know, they just aren't going to respond, right? And so, I mean, I think I think the formal game theory angle on it is that, like, um, you know, in a game like Prisoner's Dilemma or whatever, right, like, the, the I think tit for tat is sort of the evolutionarily adaptive strategy, but 
you know, you can also just cheat all the time, right? And if someone cheats all the time, there's no way to beat them by playing nice. You kind of just have to like, you know, respond. Um, so, so it's kind of it's kind of interesting. But I think I think the biggest lesson I've learned, you know, and, and that's just one example, right? But the takeaway is that you know whether it's as an investor or whether it's as a person, it's just really important to sit down and think about like, okay, am I seeing the world this way because it's the way the world really is, or am I seeing the world this way because that's the way I want the world to be? And so I'm selectively cherry picking the data points that support that worldview and. And, you know, kind of conveniently ignoring the ones that contradict that worldview. Um, you know, so so for example, right, an example of that would be, um, you know, I believe in work-life balance, right? Um, you know, but of course there are cases where I think that, you know, working longer or working harder or whatever, like, is important. Um, and you have to kind of be careful not to not to start with your thesis and then, you know, go through the confirmation bias thing and just kind of selectively confirm it. Um, so, so, yeah, those are those are some of the ones that I think would be top of mind. Wow, Samir, thank you so much. I mean, that was incredible. And, you know, obviously, Jeff and I, we can't thank you um, enough for coming on the show. You know, it was interesting because I was actually more interested in everything else about you than actually talking about like your investment process and, and your fund and everything like that. I mean, you're just, um, you know, with your models and everything. It's just, it's so interesting. And obviously, we can't thank you enough for coming on. How can people get in contact with you um, if they want to reach out? Yeah, so um, you know, email is good. Uh, my first name S A M I R at A S K E L A D D E N Capital dot com. Um, you know, obviously, I think you're going to post a link to the website, and so the website's there, and you know, they can they can read all that, and there's a lot of information there. Um, yeah, and I don't actually, you know, you mentioned I don't have a Twitter. I actually do have one now, but it's only to like do an automated like it. I don't ever use it. It just automatically like posts new things that I post on the website because it drives engagement and whatever. Okay. And, we're gonna we're gonna. Know, Maybe, we'll maybe my story includes there. Twitter at some point in the future, but I'm still trying to bring back the long email, and so there's a little bit of a, uh, you it's know, a conflict between that and 140 characters. Or I guess it's 280 now. Yeah, but yeah. Twitter's yeah. just Twitter's just a hard platform <laughs> for me because it's just so not. You'd the be way tweeting, I think. yeah. Like, you'd be going on like not, 10 different. It's threads. not long-term greenfield value, right? It's like it's not it's not something that's going to be worth something in like 10 years. It's a bunch of like 24/7 type. I don't know. I, I know there's a lot of people who derive a lot of value from it, so I try to be careful not to not to pan it too much. But certainly, I've not. You know, it's not something I'm interested in engaging in uh, personally that's so funny that's hilarious cool man well i really want to thank you so much for coming on and um you know we definitely want to have you come on in the future and you know if you do uh decide to turn over to the dark side we'll we'll help you out uh link people to your twitter so they could uh follow you you may actually like it <laughs> well you can you could you can give it my twitter and it'll give them an automatic feed of whatever they uh whatever i post it's it's Perfect. at ask aladdin tx for texas so it's okay. that's all it is it's pretty simple but yeah it's it's very bare it's it's not not fancy. Perfect. Perfect. Samir, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Perfect. Well, we hope everybody um, enjoyed this podcast. This was one of our first times of having um, individ an individual on to talk about you know them and their investing process and you know other things related to that. This is something that we probably are going to be doing in the future. It was a lot of fun for both mm -hmm. Jeff and myself. Uh, if you do want to get access to our investing idea website, feel free to go to focuscompounding.com. And if you do sign up, use the podcast promo code, which is podcast. And what they'll do is take $10 off of the monthly price indefinitely, as long as you do stay a member. Also, Jeff sends out a weekly memo on investing principle every Sunday. Uh, if you do want to get access to that and have that in your inbox, feel free to enter in your email on our homepage, and then that will allow that memo to be reached to you. Other than that, thank you very much. Everybody have a great week, and we'll see you in the next podcast.